Welcome to Keilat Israel, the Reconstructionist Synagogue uh, of the Palisades. We're very glad that you've chosen to take time out of your week and join us tonight for an evening of learning and discussion. Uh, those of you who attended our series last year um, know that this has been an amazing opportunity for us not only to learn from each other in terms of uh, exploring our traditions, approaches to different topics, um, but also to be in each other's homes. So. For us, this is more than an intellectual endeavor. It's a way of building community that we've really taken ourselves out of our own spaces and moved into each other's spaces for an evening. Um, last year, you know, we did uh, a rabbi, a priest, and a minister uh, walk into wherever they walk into um, and discuss. This uh, year, we decided it was important to expand the conversation, and in large part, that was due to the feedback that we got from you. Be right back. Um, that said, we really want to learn about Islam, and we don't know. Uh, and this felt like wonderfully, I'm happy to say, we're all up here happy to say, a safe enough place to really start to have that conversation and to learn what we don't know about and to ask the questions that we want to ask in a, in a space that feels respectful and supportive and celebratory of differences. Um, so the other piece of feedback that you gave us in response to our series last year was it as lovely as it felt, uh, the camaraderie um, up on the bima or the uh, dais or the altar, wherever we were, um, <laughs> as lovely as that was, um, some folks felt we just didn't go deep enough into our differences. That we, it felt really good and there was a really good feeling in the room, which is all fantastic and that's what we're trying to create and build um, and celebrate and we really want to learn about each other. And one of the real important things about learning from what you told us is learning about our differences in that same respectful and safe place. So we're going to ask that you help us stay honest to our mission and our goal, uh, which is to explore our differences and our similarities around these topics. So please ask questions that are a bit more pressing um, of what you really want to know about differences if we don't do that, if I don't do that um, enough up here. I'm Rabbi Amy Bernstein, Associate Rabbi um, here at Keilat Israel. And our panel this evening is made up of uh, Monsignor Liam Kidney from Corpus Christi Church uh, right down the road. And, and <laughs> Rabbi Stephen Carrubin, Senior Rabbi, of Keilat Israel. Old senior rabbi. Old, old senior rabbi. <laughs> younger than me. <laughs> and Mohammed Lakani, who uh, is joining us tonight. Um, so each of them will tell you a little bit about themselves and about where they come from and uh, how they find themselves here tonight. Uh, but what our tradition has been at each place that we visit is that the um, host clergy tells us a little bit about the physical space that we're in so that we can learn not only about each other's ideas and ideals, but also about the physical spaces uh, and what those mean and what they express when a community comes together in its uh, mishkan, in its sanctuary. So I will ask... Uh, our senior rabbi, Rabbi Stephen Carubin, to orient you a little bit to the physical space of KI Sanctuary. Okay, um, I don't need that. Right. So, welcome to again to our our spiritual home. I'll be very brief, uh, which will be unlike me. But um, <laughs> this is, uh, as you can see, the the very construction of this room is different than 
your typical church or synagogue sanctuary, um, where usually there's rows of either chairs or pews, and then some kind of an altar or some kind of a um, of a bima in in Hebrew focus, where in a synagogue the ark that holds the Torah scrolls would be, and uh, the eternal light would be. We um, constructed this sanctuary. Uh, built in 1997, I believe, in a slightly different way. You'll, you can notice on the way out, because if you didn't know, you wouldn't notice on the way in. But on the way out, you'll notice that the door where you entered is lower than this floor. That, in fact, you walk up a ramp to get up to this level of this sanctuary. And we have created this sacred space as if there is no floor. We're all up together on the bima. We're all up together on the sacred space uh, and sharing that, which is why we are able to have this um, sort of spirituality in the round. Also because uh, as Reconstructionist congregation, our focus is on community. And this design of the sanctuary is to literally reinforce community. Nobody can hide and everybody sees everybody <laughs> and uh, we're connected to one another. Uh, number one. Number two, the star that's here, the typical uh, shield of David, star of David, the Magen David in Hebrew, which is you know, one of the best-known Jewish symbols, is constructed and composed of 12 triangles, 12 triangles symbolizing, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There are also 12 rows that have the names of the tribes of Israel actually on them on the other side. And the colors in the star are taken from the description in the book of Exodus of the breastplate of the high priest. In biblical times, there were 12 stones, each of them representing the, one of the tribes of Israel. And the architects, when they designed this, uh, researched those stones that, were, that are described in the book of Exodus and the colors that those stones could be, and put those colors there in the star on the wall so that it would be a way of connecting and this whole building really is a way of connecting with our ancient biblical past in a modern setting. The color of the walls this kind of a uh, the wandering in the desert kind of look. The, the structure itself is, is both tent-like and also uh, uh, modeled on what were uh, sort of wooden synagogues of, in, in Europe as well. This uh, acoustical cloud that's right above me is paired with the flame of the, the eternal light that's rather large that everybody can see that, by the way, is solar-powered. Uh, the, the eternal light as the architects, and we figured that that would be the most <laughs> eternal, eternal light we could get, was the sun, the power of the sun, so it's solar-powered, uh, to uh, reminiscent of the cloud by day and the fire by night that led, that accompanied the Israelites through their 40 years of wandering in the desert. And the rug on which I'm standing is also taken from a description in, also in the book of Exodus when they were describing the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. One of the descriptions has to do with the tapestry that covered the Holy of Holies. And it was the description in the Bible in the Torah says that it was uh, winged lions of Judah that uh, adorned that. And so uh, and there's a, a book that I have in my, in my study where somebody recreated 
uh, models of all of the descriptions in the book of Exodus, and there's a picture that looks exactly like this. And when they said, we're, we're going to create a, uh, a rug for the center of the sanctuary, what do you want it to look like? I gave them that and said, make it look like this, and here it is. So that we're, again, connected to, um, to that biblical past. The ark itself was designed, um, in case you can't tell, as a burning bush. That's the, another, one of the symbols of revelation, of God's revelation. The Torah scrolls are in it, and you can see that they sort of emerge out of the, the ark um, from the opaque bottom to the, the clarity of the top as a kind of ongoing revelation that even though the Torah is exactly, exactly the same as it's been for thousands of years, um, we have this sense of, of revelation. So I'm, I'm going to stop talking because I could keep talking forever, but... Um, and the only other thing is that's a memorial wall where every, uh, every Friday, every Saturday at Shabbat at services, we read the names of the anniversary of the deaths of loved ones. And that's a memorial wall where people uh, put names of loved ones. And uh, so we took a quotation from the book of Proverbs, that the human soul is the light of God as a reminder that this is how we believe God is manifest in the world is through the light of the human soul. So, and welcome to KI. Rabbi Rubin, would you give me your watch? Yeah, but you probably can't read it. You should get someone's watch. You can actually read He knows it. it's probably not nice to say no. How about that ring? Anything you want. <laughs> I was wondering how far you were going to go, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> but knowing you, I wasn't wondering at all. So... Um, yeah, give her a watch yes. you can read. My watch is impossible to read. What the heck? Thank you. It's really just jewelry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our topic this evening, uh, which you hopefully have read in your flyer and have come prepared to ask lots of questions about, is forgiveness in faith. Mm-hmm. So dealing with the, the idea mm-hmm. <laughs> of, um, of forgiveness in our traditions uh, and a lot that each of us can say uh, out of our traditions uh, about that. We want you to be thinking about what you want to know um, from maybe someone who's not in your faith tradition about that topic. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to um, Father Kidney. If you will sure. tell us a bit about um, you, and then if you would please um, answer uh, the question, how does your tradition define, since if we're talking about forgiveness, we need to first talk about what is a transgression. So if you could please define for us, first of all, what is transgressive? What's transgression? What is sin in your tradition? Mm-hmm. And then we'll start talking about how to deal with that through forgiveness and, and those modalities. I'm already right there. We're all, wi- <laughs> we're all wired for sound. The, um, the idea of you know, sin in our tradition is rooted actually in uh, Greek which is the whole idea of missing the target. And so we, uh, like, have a target, or we're, we're, we're headed in a direction, or we have a direction that we're focused on. And that direction is our Jesus, that direction is our God, that direction is Christianity, that direction is living the kingdom and making an effort to live the kingdom. So as I would uh, live my life as a Catholic and as a Christian, there's a direction in my life. 
And if we would see that direction as heading toward the target. Now, to sin in our tradition is to miss the target. Now, you can miss the target in different ways. If the target is right here in front of me, I can miss the target here, or I can miss the target here, or I can miss the target this way. (laughs) And in our tradition, we deal with all of those directions, all right? So for us, um, as we live our lives, and we're heading in a general way towards the target, we're in good shape. If you can imagine a river flowing. So if my life as a Catholic and as a Christian is the river, my river is flowing toward my target, which is my God and my Jesus and the kingdom as given to us by Jesus. So that's happening. My river is flowing in that direction. Even though I may take a few little springs off to the side every so often, but I'm still headed in the same general direction. That's one kind of sin. And then the other kind of sin is the river is flowing that way towards the target, but I'm headed this way. That's a whole different kind of sin. So in our Catholic tradition, we would talk about the sins like going off in little tributaries on each side. You know, we would call that venial sin, which is not a big deal. That's the small sin. And when we call heading in the other direction, we call that mortal sin. And the idea of mortal sin is it's deadly sin. It's a sin that describes death in the sense of it is the death of a relationship and it's the destruction of a relationship between between me and God and God and me. So when you think about sin in our tradition, you basically think about the idea of missing the target and the idea of it's all about a relationship between me and my God and God and me. So that's kind of a general little thing. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, he was once asked, Malbir, what is goodness? And what is sin? So the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, said, Al-Bir, goodness is that you have good character with others. And sin is what comes in your heart as something is incorrect, something is wrong. And you would not want people to know that you did that. So sin is something that your heart will tell you. Allah has given us this heart and it is an amazing uh, creation of Allah. And the heart inside, it tells you that what you're doing is right or what you're doing is wrong. So this is ithm. Now, there are sins that a person can commit against God, and there are sins that a person can commit 
against people. Uh, both are wrong, and both should be abstained from. But the sins that are committed against God, we are dealing with a very merciful and a very forgiving God. And when a person regrets and repents and tears up and says, Oh God, I, please forgive me, I have wronged, Allah forgives. And in one of the narrations it comes, the, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, said that if you were to do so much sin that it would fill the ground and it would reach up to the clouds and then you tear up and then you ask forgiveness and then you repent. Allah has no difficulty in forgiving everything as far as the sins are concerned which are against God. As far as the sins that a person does against mankind, those are very difficult. A person, of course, will ask forgiveness. A person will, of course, repent. And uh, he will make an firm intention that he won't go towards that. But the problem is he needs to get that forgiven from that person. Whatever he has transgressed against him, for example, if he stole, he needs to get that money back to him. If he has done something major, then he needs to get that back to him. And if he can't in this life, then in the next life on the day of judgment, uh, that other person will have full capability over his good deeds. So someone asked the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, that who is the most destitute person? Who is the most destitute? A pauper. So the companions answered that A person who has no wealth or no possessions. The Prophet Muhammad said no. The biggest destitute is the person who will come on the Day of Judgment and he will have mountains of good. But he, he may have cursed somebody. He may have uh, looked down at somebody. He may have hit somebody or he may have done some type of wrong to somebody and they will get their share from his good deeds. And if he runs out of those good deeds, then his evil deeds, uh, their evil deeds will, will be given to him. So he was destined for paradise, and because of the sins he committed against man, he will be destined for hellfire. I love the similarities in, uh, in all of our religious traditions. Uh, Judaism says there, essentially there are three kinds of sins. There are sins uh, that we call ben adam l'makam, between the human being and God. There are sins ben adam l'chavero, between the human being and another human being. 
and there are sins between the human being and him or herself that you can sin against yourself. Um, and um, similarly to, um, to what Mohammed said, that in, in our tradition, the only sins that God can forgive are sins between you and God. Uh, the sins between you and anybody else are out of God's territory. Those are things that need to be taken up with the person that you have uh, injured in some way or another. That uh, you know, we recognize it's, it's relatively easy to close the door and go into your, uh, the privacy of your, your own meditation and uh, with you and God and say, I'm sorry. Um, it's a lot harder to turn to the person that you injured and go, please forgive me. You know, I was thoughtless. I said something that hurt your feelings or I was talking about you behind your back or any of the things that we do. That's a lot harder, you know. Um, and that's the one that counts the most. Uh, that, uh, that and sins against yourself. People have a tendency of um, committing sins against themselves and somehow thinking that... Uh, they don't count. That, um, and um, we have recognized that every human being has, in a sense, uh, different inclinations that war with each other, so to speak. The Yates are Tov and the Yates are the good and sort of evil inclination in all of us. And that uh, sin, and there are several kinds of sins in Judaism, the, uh, the, the most typical sin is exactly as Father Kidney uh, Described, which is the, the idea of missing the mark, the Hebrew word chet in, for sin literally is an archery term that means you miss the mark. And it's you know, going astray from the right path, which is why in, in Hebrew and Jewish tradition, the Jewish law, the, the correct path of how to act as a human being is called halakha. It's the way. It's following you know, God's way. And recognizing that each of us, all of us, make mistakes in life, which is why in our tradition we have our High Holy Days and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and every year an opportunity to push the reset button and to, uh, to both ask forgiveness for the, the transgressions that we've, uh, we've done against God and uh, hopefully to go to the people that we've hurt and ask for their forgiveness as well. And uh, to treat ourselves, where everyone knows the biblical commandment, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but most people forget that the end is as you love yourself. And that, it, that what you're supposed to do is love yourself and be the kind of person that you, your neighbor would then want to have you love. So that's... Um... So would each of you talk for a moment about um, who does the forgiving in your tradition, who were the parties involved in forgiveness, and how do those parties forgive? Like, how, do, how does that look in each of your traditions about who, who's involved in forgiveness? <laughs> Forgive me, but I'd like you to go first. <laughs> Forgive us. Thank you. Um, uh, when we were coming here, I was mentioning a story to Brother Uthman, and uh, I will mention that story. <clears throat> I hope it doesn't take too long. Um, one time, the Prophet Muhammad 
was sitting in a mosque and uh, he was sitting with his companions and he says to them, A man from the dwellers of paradise is about to enter the mosque. So all the people looked at the person and he was obscure, no one knew him. Uh, nobody. So they looked at him and he said, okay. Second day, the Prophet said the same thing, that a man is about to enter the mosque and he's from the dwellers of paradise. Meaning he has something in him that is uh, making him 100% going to paradise. So the people looked at him again, it was the same man. When it happened a third time, uh, one of the companions of the Prophet, his name is Abdullah bin Amr. May God be pleased with him. He went up to the person, he said, can I spend some time with you? So the person said, yes, sure. So they went to the house, and now this Abdullah bin Amr <clears throat> was a person known for worship. In the days he was fasting, in the nights he was up worshiping giving charity to the poor, um, recite, reciting the Qur'an, whatever good deed you can think of, he was on top of it. So he said that, <clears throat> I have an opportunity to get something amazing from this person. So I'll learn and I'll put it into my daily routine. So they came home and uh, they had dinner and he thought that, okay, now he's going to do something that I'm going to learn from. The person got ready for bed and went to bed. So he was dumbfounded. He said, whoa, he goes to sleep at night? <laughs> he doesn't worship all night? And I do? So he said, okay, maybe, you know, he fasts a lot. So he'll wake up early and he'll have his little food and then he will uh, fast the whole day. So the person woke up, uh, prayed, you know, and then went to the mosque, made his prayers there, came back, they had breakfast. So no fasting and no waiting, you know, spending night in worship. So he said, okay, maybe this person was sick. He wasn't feeling well. He couldn't do it this night. Maybe the next night. Next night, nothing happened. Day, nothing happened. Next, for three days, nothing out of the ordinary, just a regular worshiper. So he went up to the man and he said, look, this is the th deal. The prophet said this about you and we were all intrigued and we wanted to see what is in you that, you know, uh, uh, that he, you're getting this declaration of the prophet. He said, ma huwa illa ma It's only whatever you see, that's all I have. So he was very disappointed and he was about to leave. He said, except one thing. Except one thing. So he said, yes, what is that? He said, whenever I go to sleep, I clean my heart from all malice, all enmity, all hatred. Any filth in the heart, I take it out, I forgive everyone. I forgive. And then I go to sleep. So he said, He said, this is the reason. This is why 
you have attained what you have achieved and this is something that we are not we don't have the 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 capability of so a heart that forgives a heart which is pure and clean this is very beloved to god and even you know a lot of people might think that i will do this deed that deed you know and people are busy in doing many many good deeds and they sometimes don't focus in the heart and their character with others might not be where it should be the heart not might not be as clean so when you are doing that worship god is focused not only on that worship but he's focused on your heart how is that heart so if the heart is clean then of course the reward is more but if the heart is not clean then the same consequence so when a person forgives this is very beloved to allah and of course you know what i'm understanding from the question god forgives and <clears throat> we have some traditions that you know even on the day of judgment uh there will be people who will be given this opportunity to forgive like i mentioned the 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 narration that you know uh, a person god can only forgive what has been a transgression against him but as far as the people are concerned the people must forgive so on the day of judgment we have many narrations that <clears throat> allah will ask that person that this is the paradise and he will look at the paradise and it will be an amazing you know sight he said this is paradise for someone so the person will ask who is this for a person who can pay the qima of it the value of it so the person will say who can pay the value of this so god will say you can by forgiving your brother so he said i forgive everything so god will tell him take him by the hand the one that transgressed against you and both of you go into this amazing jannah in this amazing paradise so god <clears throat> has the ability to forgive and the people have the ability to forgive of course um you have to be just but forgiveness is greater you know like mahatma gandhi said that uh, you know uh, to forgive uh, if i can remember correctly uh, forgiveness is a trait of the strong the weak cannot forgive so you have to be strong to forgive and it's above taking justice uh even after taking justice of whatever you were supposed to be given you ha- you can you still have to forgive and i hope that answers the question so in islam when you sin against another human being when you transgress against a r- wrong another human being you go- you go to them to yes. ask forgiveness yes and that yes. should and in islam you're taught that you should grant that forgiveness to exactly. someone who's wronged you exactly. then one goes to god right to ask forgiveness. forgiveness um i'm hearing that there's another category which is 
some at the day of judgment that if you haven't forgiven someone here on earth, so there's another category of forgiveness yeah. that can happen after this lifetime yeah, between because, people. Yeah, because you get this question a lot that, you know, maybe you backbit someone, you slandered someone, you did some things against somebody, but now that person has passed away. So how can uh, you ask forgiveness from that person? So first of all, you have to repent. You have to ask forgiveness. And in our religion, we are supposed to do good deeds on behalf of that person. So, uh, you know, we do the Hajj and uh, we go to the pilgrimage or we give charity or we just pray and we're uh, intending that this is on behalf of that person. And giving charity is also something that uh, is very important. And the, the, one of the things that the Prophet said was to ask forgiveness for that person. So when you're asking forgiveness for that person, hopefully on the Day of Judgment, he will see this in his book of deeds and then he will forgive that person. All right. Thank you. Very Ruben. Um, <clears throat> just one other comment about sin. Uh, to be clear, in Jewish, Jewish tradition, uh, sin is in no way a, a state of being of someone. Sin is always behavior. It's always uh, clearly uh, something that somebody does or says is sinful. The person isn't considered sinful. It's the act that's sinful. And therefore, there's always the possibility of repentance from the act and doing whatever you can to repair the damage that you've done uh, to yourself and to others, um, to God, by your actions. Uh, I would say that the um, sort of the best known, perhaps Jewish biblical uh, model of forgiveness is Joseph. You know uh, that everybody knows the story of Joseph and uh, from the Bible of his uh, brothers uh, selling him into slavery, thinking they were going to kill him, putting him in a pit, selling him off to slavery, and of course when when they're eventually reunited and Joseph is, you know, the, in charge of all of Egypt and has all the power and there are his brothers in front of him. And ultimately, when he breaks down and um, announces to them, you know, on Yosef, uh, that I am Joseph, your brother, and they are terrified, appropriately, because here's a man with all the power and the last time they saw him, they had sold him into slavery. Um, and Joseph... Uh, famously says to them, I know that what you intended was for harm, but God intended this for good. And I forgive you for that because if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here now in this position to be able to save you, your lives, and in fact, everyone's life. That I was here for a purpose. And in a sense, it's, um, you know, it's a fantastic human quality uh, that we often call 2020 hindsight. That is, we look back at our experiences and we reinterpret them and we revalue them and uh, often are able to, uh, to forgive someone and, and hopefully ourselves as well as we see where we are today, uh, unlike where we started. 
uh, when we were younger or when we were more foolish or when we did whatever, that if we hadn't done this and we hadn't done that, even the silly things and the foolish things that we'd done, we wouldn't be where we are today in a position to do the kind of contributions that we're able to do or have the kind of relationships that we're able to have because I believe that human beings are fundamentally meaning makers anyway. That's what we do. We make meaning out of stuff and experiences and that we have the opportunity to to um, take our lives and the actions of others, uh, even those that uh, had an original intention that wasn't positive, and through our act, through our own forgiveness, like Joseph's, change the world. Through our own forgiveness, change them. Through our own forgiveness, change ourselves. I mean, uh, our tradition, like uh, many traditions, understands resentment that we hold on to like uh, somebody holding on to a hot coal, you know, and it may be resentment and anger against what somebody did for you, but it's not hurting them that you're holding on to this hot coal. It's only burning you. And the resolution is to let go of the hot coal and to let go of the resentment and, um, and, and to reconcile. So we have two different kinds of forgiveness. God forgives and human beings forgive. Um, but we really only have control over the human being part. So for us, it's about doing what we can to let go and to forgive. So in the Joseph story that you quote, it's that Joseph seems to understand that what was done to him, although it was wrong, you know, yeah. what, what was intended for him, that there was a purpose behind it, you know, that was somehow godly. Yeah, he he doesn't good. suggest that they, that they did anything other than have bad intention, evil intention. But, but what he was able to do was say, your intention was for evil, but God's intention was for good. And so here I ended up in a position... As the vizier you know, of Egypt. Yes. So are there sins that aren't forgivable? He, he wound up the vizier of Egypt. Other yeah, people well, wind up quadriplegics and yeah. dead and out of someone else's malice. So are so, there sins that are not are forgivable? Are there sins that, you know, that one... Can't forgive in that way to say it was all for the good, somehow. Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure forgiveness is a tough thing. Not only is it very difficult to say I'm sorry for most people in the world and to admit that they were wrong, um, but there's a power that you hold over others when they have wronged you that people are loath to give up that power, that sort of self-righteous power of going, you know, <laughs> sorry, you know, I'd, I'd like to cling to my hurt, please, because it makes me feel superior in, in some way. And I think it's a, it's a spiritual discipline, and it's a, it's a difficult and a challenging spiritual discipline to be able to forgive. Um, and I think anything could be forgivable. That's up to the individual who's hurt. To forgive, you know, it's not up. It's not up to me to forgive myself for something I did that hurt someone else. It's up to the other person, and it's um, it's a challenge, and it's a it's a it's a higher spiritual level, I would say, to be able to forgive people for things that they've done when they've hurt you. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, if you want to elevate uh, and your elevation towards God and spirituality, depends on how clean your heart is. Sure. So if you have enmity and hatred or you know you have these feelings then you are stopping that elevation yourself so it's like you said it's very important to forgive even the unforgivable the advantage and the there's something wrong with the sound here no you sound great 
You guys hear? You can hear now. Yeah. The, um, you sound like you have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> the, the advantage and the disadvantage of being the third person to talk is you're hearing all of the things that you feel you uh, relate with. So like what Stephen started with, the idea of that uh, sin is about behavior, all right? Uh, we believe as a Catholic people that people are basically good, all right, with a tendency to evil. Uh, but the bottom line is people are basically good, or what another way of describing it is a tendency to selfishness. But the bottom line is we're basically good. So sin is about behavior. You know, it's not the idea of that somebody is bad. So I'm hearing that from Steve. And I'm saying, yes, I'm right there. And then I'm hearing the, you know, the different stories that the sheikh was sharing with us and Steve is sharing with us. And I, I'm thinking about the idea of, you know, Jesus saying to us, you know, sometimes people walk around saying, I love God and I hate my brother. You know, and Jesus says, that man is a liar and the truth is not in him. For how can you love God whom you can't see if you don't love your neighbor whom you see every day? So when we talk about forgiveness, God is the one who forgives. Because in sin, God is the one who's offended. Now there's a subtle difference there, right? In, when we talk about sin, it's an offense against God. And so therefore, God is the one that's going to do the forgiving. Now, as a human being, Liam Kidney, who claims to be a Christian and who claims to be Catholic, my goal in life is to try to live as my God is calling me to live. Some days I do a good job of that and some days I do a lousy job, right? But if, for example, as a human being, I refuse to forgive, the only thing I can say is, I am not doing what my God is calling me to do. And if I consistently refuse to forgive, then I must stop calling myself a Christian. Because I am called by my God to imitate the God who is the unconditional forgiver. So in Christianity, our God is an unconditional forgiver and an unconditional lover. And the challenge to me is to be an unconditional forgiver and to be an unconditional lover. Now I am not God. And let me tell you, the more you know me, the more you know I'm not God and I got a long way to go, let me tell you. But every single day I struggle to be more like what my God is calling me to be. So every single day I struggle to be more like my Jesus, which I'm called to be. So when I find it difficult to forgive somebody who has damaged my reputation in some way, 
by speaking about me behind my back, and I know who they are, and I go into prayer, all right, and I know my God is challenging me to forgive that person. And I struggle with that. But I know what I'm called to. I'm called to forgiveness. Now, the, the second aspect as regards who forgives who, uh, which was your original question, the, in early Christianity, for the first 300 years of Christianity, the early Christians, which were a very small group of people, and the vast majority of early Christians were Jewish, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was born a Jew. <laughs> Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus lived as a Jew. Jesus died as a Jew. The guy who hung on the cross was a Jew. Jesus. It's always the way, you know? That's just the way it always is. <laughs> so you can relate to And Jesus never heard the word Christian. He definitely never heard the word Catholic. All right, And so when, when we look at the early Christian community, which were mostly Jewish, that Christian community in the first 300 years, when they would get together to celebrate our Eucharist, which is our celebration of thanksgiving to our God, all right, when they would gather to celebrate the Eucharist, they were small groups, 10, 15, maybe 20 people. The first ritual of the Eucharist was a public confession of sin, where everybody in the group went around the table and confessed publicly to the whole group their sin, since they were last together, whatever it would be. I have failed to live up to the call of my Jesus because I was unfaithful to my wife. I have failed to live up to the call of my Jesus because I stole. I failed to live up to the call of my Jesus, whatever the sin was. And that sin was confessed publicly to the whole group. And then the whole group brought forgiveness to that person. But everybody in the group went around. That all worked fine until Constantine. And with Constantine, when he became the Roman Emperor, and automatically everybody in the Roman Empire became Christian. That one-on-one -on -one confession was a struggle, all right? Because the community... Because it would have taken all week. <laughs> it would have taken all year. Imagine. They, now there were so many people in the community that the concept of every individual standing in front of the community looking for forgiveness became very impractical. And so therefore, a whole new approach to asking for forgiveness happened. And that was the community selected a leader. And they said, this person now speaks for the community. And when this person speaks for the community, if they say you are forgiven on behalf of the community, then you are forgiven. If they say you are not forgiven 
on behalf of the community, you're not forgiven. But the community choose this person. This person had no power or authority without the community. It's a little bit like uh, being a judge in our society today. Judges are chosen by the community to exercise judgment on behalf of the community. Some judges do a good job. Some judges don't do such a good job. So the community, right after Constantine, around the year 345, 400, they choose and that person spoke on behalf of the community. But the bottom line is the forgiveness is rooted in God. So originally, does that mean the role of the priest was giving absolution on behalf with the authority of the community, not the authority of God? Oh, no. For us, the community and God are one and the same. Could you explain about original sin? So that's the other place I was going to go. That's a whole other one now. So we talked about it as a behavior and not a state. Not letting you not go there. (laughs) But we know that original sin seems to be a state rather than a behavior by the person. And the question is? So, so if, it, if sin, as you defined it, is behavior then, sure. and not a state, then sure. how is one in a state of original sin coming into the world when one hasn't done anything yet? Uh, it's, the term original sin means the original sin, right? And for us, in our tradition, the original sin was the sin of Adam and Eve, all right? We, we all know the story, I think, where Adam and Eve are in the garden and things are going wonderful and they're having a lovely time and God is having but a little... But they're hungry. And <laughs> God is having a little <laughs> chit-chat with them and saying, you know, it's all yours and we love you and everything's going great. You know, now stay away from that tree over there because... Now, does everybody understand this as a story? <laughs> you know, I don't want somebody, you know, wanted... Well, what kind of an apple was it? You know what I mean? (laughs) The idea is stay away from that tree over there and you're going to be just fine. And God goes off into the sunset and the couple are standing around getting bored with life and uh, they end up meeting the devil and the devil says, the only reason God doesn't want you to have that tree is if you eat from that tree, you're going to have all the truth of all life. And they chit-chatted about that, and they decided to give it a shot, you know. And so it reminds me of a joke that I'm going to... Can I tell the joke? The, 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 it's not a priest or rabbi. In a no, it's not a priest or rabbi. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the joke is about the priest uh, is preaching in church, and the church is packed with people, full. And the, preacher, the priest is up there preaching giving everybody blazes about the whole thing, right? And there's a guy up in the choir loft and he gets so excited by what the priest says, he flips over and falls off the choir loft. But as he's going down, he grabs the chandelier. You know what I mean? I blew that on the thing. I, I told a joke wrong. It's a woman. <laughs> there she is up in the choir loft. There she is in the choir loft, all excited about what the priest says and flips over the choir loft. And as she's falling, she grabs the chandelier. And so with that, the priest looks, and there's Mrs. Murphy hanging on the chandelier right there. And the priest says, if any man in this audience 
dares to look up, he'll, he'll go blind, you know. And Mike turned to Patrick and he says, I think I'll risk one eye. <laughs> now, where did that come from? I have no idea. <laughs> Adam and Eve. I, that was the I Adam, just and Eve, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Something about temptation. That's right. It's about the temptation. Something about temptation. So there we are. Eve says to Adam, I think I'll risk one eye. And she <clears> took <throat> a bite out of the apple, all right? Now, yeah. by the way, a little trivia. The only thing they knew, God bless you, the only thing they knew that they didn't know before after eating the apple is they were naked. They learned nothing new other than they were naked. So we could talk about that scripturally and see what the symbolism of that is. So the idea of that sin, and that is not listening to your God, not following the directors of your God, and failing to be what God has called you to be, not trusting your God, we call that original sin, all right? Now, that, that concept according to Augustine. Now remember, Christianity was 400 years old when Augustine came on the map, all right? So when Augustine came on the map, Augustine was the one who created the term original sin. And for 400 years in Christianity, that term was not used. He was a very unhappy man. He was man. a very unhappy he was, guy. He was not a happy guy. Even though he was... Well, we won't get into no. Augustine. All right. And so <laughs> Augustine created the term original sin. And the concept is in Christianity, in the Catholic Church, all sin is social. There's no such thing as private sin. All sin is community. So when somebody sins in the community... The whole community is less because the whole community has been affected by the sin. So with Adam and Eve's sin, the whole community, the whole world was lessened by their sin. The world as it was and the world as it is today. We are lessened by their failure and we call that original sin. The effect that their failure has on us is called original sin. So just theirs. Yeah, when we all start with sin that is social, and we're all, I'm assuming, less whenever sin is brought into the world. That's exactly right. But their sin is the only social sin that that touches everybody. Oh no, all sin touches everybody. So, but Adam and Eve, there was the original sin. They were the first. Okay. We've had a few sins since then. You know, so one or two. So, but all sin lessens everybody. So every tradition seems to agree that it's a good idea to forgive, that we're supposed to forgive each other, that God calls us into forgiveness of one another um, before we can presumably go to God. So why is it we have such a hard time forgiving one another? Not just interpersonally, but as peoples, as religious traditions, we have a really hard time. 
forgiving each other. <laughs> because we're human beings. We're just human beings. And we, we hold on to things. The definition of Irish Alzheimer's. You forget everything except the grudges. <laughs> and that, the problem is that's not just the Irish, all right? The problem is that's all of us. And I, I remember talking to some fourth graders and chit-chatting with them and saying, hey, you know, do you, do you guys get mad at each other? Oh, yes, Father, yes, yes. Kind of thing. And I mean, how mad do you get? Well, I won't talk to her on the phone. And so like there's somebody who gets so mad at them, you won't even talk to them. Yep. So how long was the longest you ever didn't talk to somebody? 20 minutes. <laughs> now, for a kid, that's a lifetime. And I said to the kid, you know, the problem is adults don't talk to each other for a lifetime. And so why is it that we human beings will literally, not just in life, we pass it on to generations. Like I remember growing up in Ireland and my mother saying, no, we don't talk to those people. Why? We just don't talk. We don't talk about it. So we don't. We don't talk to them and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. And then you're looking at those people going, why don't we talk to those people? Right. You know, because as human beings, that's what we call, we're born basically good with a tendency to this, who knows, selfishness or preservation or whatever. So I think it's human beings. Um, in the Islamic tradition, we have uh, two enemies, uh, main enemies that uh, God is talking about over and over in the Quran, and it also comes in the prophetic uh, traditions. The first enemy we all know, Satan, and uh, Quran mentions it that innahu kana lakum mubina. He's a clear enemy of yours. The enemy that God highlights in an amazing way in many parts of the Qur'an is something that's called the nafs. Uh, nafs means the inner self, the inner, I call it the inner animal, uh, the lower self inside a person. And uh, we've been sent in this world to perfect our spirituality. and we have attacks from shaitan or satan and then we get attacked from our inner self which keeps us from elevating and this god calls is the biggest enemy and uh you know even the prophet muhammad has said that the biggest enemy that you have is and he took the you know uh, metaphor, he said, the biggest enemy you have is between your legs. So it, he was pointing towards the nafs. So we have been given this time in this world 
to perfect our religion, perfect our uh, connection and our attachment with Allah through training the nafs, training this inner animal. You can't kill it. It's there. It's an enemy. It's a test for all of us. And we, you know, through our teachings, through, our, through the, the, the character of the prophets, to, through the laws of God, we are training ourselves and we are uh, bettering this nafs that is inside this inner lower self that is inside. It's even in the prophets. And they also are going through this test. So when a person is not forgiving, he's basically listening to his animal inside. He's listening to his lower self and he's keeping that grudge and he's keeping that, that uh, animosity and basically that is the hindrance that is uh, between him and him elevating towards God. Um, it seems to me that in Jewish, Jewish tradition, um, the purpose of life, the purpose of being here, uh, we say is litaken olam b'malchut shaddai, to heal the broken fragments of the world in um, with holiness. That is, like uh, in the Torah and the book of Leviticus, where uh, God says, Kiddoshim Tihiyu, be holy. That our, our sort of prime directive is to be holy and to bring holiness into the world. And that if we act in such a way that we bring, that our actions and our words help heal the brokenness of the world, we are bringing holiness into the world. We are imitating God. We are, um, by definition, uh, being compassionate, forgiving, uh, merciful, caring, loving, just. The qualities that we associate with God in, in our prayer, in our worship, in our services, the, are qualities that we are supposed to imitate in our own lives, and in so doing, bring that sort of healing to the world. Uh, and that forgiveness is one of those um, hurdles that we have to jump over, that we have to overcome in order to be successful at our job, our task of healing the world. That if you don't forgive, there can't be healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, forgiveness and healing go hand in hand. And if you see our, our, our very purpose of life as healing, then you know that forgiveness is one of the tools that's essential to affecting any healing. Um, otherwise, you end up with lots of open wounds running around the world, and that's the opposite of healing. Um, and, and I'm sure all of our traditions pointed out, because it's so difficult, because it's such a, a hard thing for human beings to do, to, to forgive. It's hard for humans to forgive themselves. It's one of the hardest things to do. We carry around, you know, we walk through life like with a ball and chain tied to our feet. We drag all of our sins and transgressions of the past with us. Even if someone else comes to us and says, you're forgiven, you know, most of us still don't let go. You know, because we in our hearts know, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. I think we're hardest on ourselves. And that one of the greatest acts of healing is the act of, of self-forgiveness, of allowing ourselves to recognize that we all screw up and we all make mistakes, and that's the nature of what it is to be a human being. And 
all you can do is the best you can do. And to use the rituals, customs, the holidays, the, the, the festivals, the ceremonies of each of our traditions to affect that self-healing so that we have the strength, as Muhammad said, to be able to, to forgive others. I would want to support something that Steve just said. It just touched me <clears throat> that, like when I hear confessions, which is a formal ritual in our Catholic tradition where individuals come one-on-one -on -one to be forgiven in a formal ritualistic sense, me as the representative speaking for the whole community, um, when I will be with the person and sharing and interacting. And then if I get a few moments of silence after bringing them forgiveness and they leave, and it's definitely the Holy Spirit, I'll begin reflecting on that I need to let go of some things in my own life, my own weakness, my own sin. Even though I go to confession and my confessor will bring me forgiveness, I'm convinced of God's forgiveness. I'm not always convinced of my forgiveness. And my, uh, uh, the challenge to forgive myself and believe that I am truly forgiven. And, uh, and worthy and worthwhile. Yeah. I, yeah. That you are worth mm -hmm. being forgiven. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that idea that Steve just said, I think... When you have somebody as a human being who's struggling to bring forgiveness to somebody else, my experience is they have a huge struggle about their own self-forgiveness of something in their own lives. So the non-forgiveness of somebody else is rooted in the self-forgiveness of something within them. We want to open it up for your questions. So is there someone who has a question for our panel? I'll try. Good. I was thinking a lot about the concept of forgiveness on many levels. And I started to think about Lance Armstrong. And I started to think about that as a discussion for the charity and the people who feel so badly and that that whole charity is now, I don't know what word to use, but it isn't going to exist or whatever it will transform into. And all the people who are saying what a terrible travesty to how he represented himself to everyone. And I guess my question is, and there's discussion about these heroes and heroines for children, for adults, for athletes, for movie stars, for etc. And we live in this city where there are so many of those people in Bollywood, Hollywood, um, and then I think about the concept of moral integrity and Lawrence Kohlberg, the moral development theorist, and talked about the levels of moral development, et cetera. Enough, enough. So do you have a question you want to ask them? Yeah. 
So do you want to comment on the, what, what happens when our heroes and heroines turn out to be fallible and sin against the community that can't really, you know, how do you, how do you deal with forgiveness there? Well, I, you know, I would say, first of all, it goes back to your questioning me about, you know, why do we have such a tough time forgiving, you know? We're talking about human nature. You know, we're talking about human beings. We're not talking about puppets. And we do tend to put people up in pedestals. And for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, deservingly or not deservingly. And sometimes people set themselves up on pedestals. And the higher the pedestal, the bigger the fall. You know, like if you're just kind of, you know, whoever, Joe Blow in society, and you fail, you know, there's a fall. But if you're a public person in society, the fall is much bigger. So like we hold our politicians to a higher level sometimes. N not an unusual level. We hold ourselves to the same level, but we expect them to be different. Uh, we do that with our clergy. We expect our clergy to be different, all right? And what we do is... In a good way, right? In a good way, yeah. in a good way. <laughs> and when we find out that they're not, you know, when we find out they fail, that like our priest, you know, is an abuser, or we find out that our minister has been unfaithful to his wife, you know, and or our minister or rabbi has a child outside of marriage, and we hear those things, those are big falls now. They can happen to anybody. And um, sometimes our heroes disappoint us, and they let us down. And... Um, Dealing with that is a huge challenge again. Why? Because we're human beings. And the question is, what are we challenging ourselves to? Can I uh, also add to that, maybe? Please, please. Um, we are humans and we will sin. And uh, we are told in the Islamic tradition that uh, hate the sin, but not the sinner. So we are allowed to hate the sin. And there are many sins being committed. And we also look at ourselves and we feel that we are sinners also. And we hate the sin that we do. We hate the sin that others do, but we don't look down at anyone. We don't judge anyone. And the main reason for that is one of the sayings of uh, the Prophet is Al-Ibratu bil khawatim What matters is the ending. What matters is what the person ended on. So sometimes a person chooses the wrong path, uh, he comes under sin or he comes under some type of transgression, but his repentance is such that at the end of his life, God gives him this uh, opportunity and he changes his ways and he becomes maybe a saint so we 
if we want to elevate as God-fearing believers, then we cannot hate the sinner, but we can hate the sin. Uh, I will just, uh, you know, I hope we don't, a little uh, event that comes in my mind. Uh, at the time of Moses, um, there was a uh, person that the community had kicked out because of all the transgressions that he had done. Uh, too many sins and there were such that they just had to kick him out of the community and he was living in the jungles. At the time of his death, he died. Moses uh, is, uh, you know, the revelation comes to him that go and attend the funeral of my beloved slave who is in that place and tell the people in your community that whoever has a huge amount of sins, they should go and attend in that funeral and I will forgive them all right at that funeral. So when the people, you know, they came in multitudes, they come there and they see it's that same sinful person. So they said, oh Moses, what is this? You know, uh, you are, you told us that there's some righteous, saintly person and we're coming to his funeral and this is the person. We kicked him out. So he asked God and God told him that he made such a repentance because he, and it's mentioned in the narration that he looked to his right and he looked to his left and that he saw no one and he turned towards the heavens and he made such a repentance that was so beloved to God that because of him, the sinner, the rest of the people that attend, attended the funeral, they got forgiven. So you, you never know how a person ends his life. So we, we, you know, we are not there to judge. Uh, but if we want to elevate, then we have to keep our hearts clean from everyone. So, um, so you're, uh, I, I guess for, for me, I'm, I also struggle with the ways that our traditions use our faith traditions um, to hold people to the opposite of that, to hold people accountable as groups, you know, that whether it's the West and we're sinners and so, you know, we deserve whatever comes or in the Middle East where we demonize each other and, and all kinds of horrible things happen or um, certainly in Ireland, right, violence used in the name of, of faith because somehow... People have participated in sinful behavior in such a way that they therefore forfeit their lives. And um, just, I, I think it's so true what we've heard here tonight is how most of us would think about forgiveness. And yet I, I carry away this, this feeling. Like there, and there's this other level of all of our traditions where, where faith is used as a way to say categorically a group is sinful enough that there are no innocents among them. And just, just want to say that I'm kind of aware of that and struggling with that as I hand the microphone to someone else to ask a question. But Amy, what, what you just said right there now, is there a question in there someplace? <laughs> I, I just think we, we dance around the fact that within our traditions, whatever we've just said about everybody needs to be forgiven and, and <clears throat> sin is a behavior and not a state, and you love the sinner, you hate the sin... I think there is a way that faith traditions have, have gotten themselves around an idea that a group can participate in a way of living, 
a way of thinking, a way of practicing, a way of being that makes them so sinful somehow that we can blow up their children. I, I just, and, and hold, that, hold groups. Just, that's, not, that's not justified by a faith tradition. Right, but I think faith traditions have used the language of faith to justify that. That's all I'm saying. That we, we, we just are all agreeing that that's not something we would do. I do think faith traditions have used that language of sin and sinfulness to, to, to do things that... I, I would that, say one of our... Everybody recognizes that one of the challenges that we all face is that language is public and public property. And therefore, uh, anybody can take it and anybody can use it and anybody can twist it and anybody can misuse it and anybody can abuse it and anybody can stand up and say, I'm doing this in the name of and claim any of our faith traditions and blow somebody up. And somebody, in fact, lots of people have, in the name of all of our faith traditions, blown people up and blown children up and done all kinds of things. Um, and, and still do, and say that they're doing it in the name of our various faith traditions, even though those of us sitting here would say, wait a minute, you can't, that's not what my faith tradition teaches. You can't say that you're doing that because Judaism teaches this or because you know Jesus would want you to do this or because Muhammad would want you to do that. But people do, and, and people twist and misuse religion as they do every other philosophy and theology in life and say, I'm, I'm doing this, and maybe they believe it. And maybe they are believers in their own way, and they think they're being authentic. And I think one of the challenges are that life is messy and complex, and everybody doesn't agree that if you call yourself a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, or something else, that here are the boundaries that you're, 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 you have to operate out of. People misuse and misteach, and we all take the consequences of that, unfortunately. That's why I think what's called into that is leadership. So like, for example, if you have a Catholic young man, which has happened in this country, who takes a, a gun and kills a doctor who performs abortions, and his tradition is Catholicism, and he says he's killing this doctor because the doctor is a murderer, and he will never do any more abortions, and somehow that young man justifies that out of his, quote, Catholic tradition. To me, that's where leadership comes in and needs to speak out and say, that is not representative of Catholic tradition. That is not what we're called to. That is wrong, and that young man, in doing that, is not speaking the truth as expressed in a Catholic tradition. But that's about leadership. That the leadership of that tradition has to not speak up. You can't just let that kind of muzzle a little bit around out there and you know, kind of it's dwelling up and you have people saying, oh yeah, he's right, oh yeah, that's right, I kind of agree with him. No, no, leadership in that community must speak up and say, that's wrong. Amen. Um, I'm curious how each 
religion would view the following. I've had things done to me in the past, as I'm sure everyone in this room has, that in some ways were, to me, unforgivable. But I've been able to look past them and forgive the person because I recognize, I, you know, A, I recognize they're not perfect and they are human beings. And I also recognize that people make mistakes and perhaps that person's view or their shortcomings made them act a way that I wouldn't have acted. But what I haven't been able to do is necessarily forget what happened. And some of the relationships, while I've mended those relationships and they continue on, in the back of my mind, I can't help but forget the pain that I felt from their actions, the, the fact that if they were capable of doing it once, it could happen again. And so there's the word forget. So I've been able to forgive. I haven't necessarily been able to forget. And I'm wondering how each of these, you know, each of the respective religions view that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did. To me, uh, it, it, what you're sharing is that you're a fine, healthy human being. Yeah. And uh, the, I don't think there's a link between forgiveness and forgetting. I think they're two separate concepts. Uh, because some hurts are so deep, all right, that they can begin to take us over. And I go back to what Steve said in the beginning, I would encourage somebody like that, you know, when they would come and talk to me, you like to think about, if you keep on holding on to this, remember the person that hurt you, they've long forgotten this. And yet I'm keeping it alive. And the only way it's gonna stay alive is if we nourish it. If you don't nourish something, it dies. And so we have to begin to look within ourselves, how am I nourishing this not forgetting? How am I nourishing that in some way? Now, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm just a guy that does the best I can as regards working with people. But I wouldn't necessarily link <laughs> forgiveness and forgetting. They're two different human experiences. Oh, without a doubt. Well, it has to change. No, I think it, I think oh, yeah. that's an unrealistic expectation, and and I certain I personally wouldn't uh, wouldn't expect somebody to forget what was done. First of all, it's foolish to do that. And um, because it's what you said before is probably true that someone who does something before could do the same thing again. The forgiveness part is for you to be able to not walk around like this, not walk around having it hurt you, having it continue to be in your present. That, that's really what it's about. It's, 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 it's for you to be able to 
to let go of your hurt and your pain, not to necessarily trust that the person is, I'm going to turn my life over to this person again. Um, and forgetting is probably impossible. I mean, this is the nature of, of human beings. Uh, you know, you forgive and then you, you move on, but you, you don't want to be foolish either. We have time for two more questions. One over here. Okay. Yes, thank you. I thought it's just been a, a wonderful uh, discussion. I'm curious as to the difference between uh, when you talk about imitating God and our call to uh, be more like God uh, and these celebrities you see who become God. You know, what, what, is, what is it that happens in the human being where uh, they displace uh, their God and become that? And I think I see that so much in our society. Can you address that from the three different perspectives? Yeah, I think that, uh, I'll be quick. Jewish tradition and certainly the biblical tradition holds up almost as the number one sin um, idolatry. The number one sin mm -hmm. in the Torah, First I think, is, right. is without question idolatry. And idolatry is putting something higher than God. That is putting, and in sort of common everyday language, it means making anything more important than the kind of values that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Whatever it is, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's money, whether it's you know having the best house, whether it's being the baddest guy on the block, whatever it happens to be, when you elevate something or a part of something to be the most important thing in your life, hero worship like the kind of celebrity worship that you're talking about, turning someone into, quote, God, means that you've decided that is more important and more valuable and of a higher value to you than the kind of ethics and values and way of life that, that our traditions teach us to, to, in fact, cherish. And that's what idolatry is. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes in many forms. And it's something that we, it's easy for us to slip into. And certainly in Los Angeles, it's the nature of our, our town. And it's something that, uh, that's why we have religious traditions and people go to church, people go to mosques, and people go to synagogues, to remind themselves of what really matters. It's because we need to remind ourselves of the things that matter most in life. I second that. <laughs> there you go. The, uh... I'm reminded by your question of two things. One is, many years ago, uh, I went to a concert in the Coliseum in Los Angeles uh, for U2, all right? Mm. The Joshua Tree album. That'll tell you how old it was, all right? <laughs> and uh, there are 90,000 people at this concert, and halfway through the concert, uh, Bono uh, from U2 walks out in this kind of runway out into the middle of the Colosseum and the spotlights are on him and you have 90,000 people around and I'm going, and the people are just, you know, treating this guy like God. And well, he is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you got to admit, the guy's really cool. And, uh, <laughs> he gave a little, for lack of a better word, fervorino on social justice and a call to justice. I turned to a priest friend of mine who was with me and I said, thanks be to God he said something worthwhile. <laughs> because if he had said something stupid, it would have the same value right. in the sense of for the 90,000 people because he said it. Right. And that's the idolatry thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, 
like I walk in the patio of our church on a Sunday morning and celebrities, you know, are part of our community. None of them are there because of their fame in some way. They're there because they're putting God in the right place. And that's the key. That's why they're there. They're not there hoping somebody's going to see them on the patio of the church with their kids. They're there because they want God in the right place and they want their kids to have God in the right place. That's the challenge. Um, Mohammed, I'm sure you can appreciate that the Islam that you talk about here is very different than the radical Islam that we read about in the newspaper. Uh, my question is, does it make a difference in the Quran or to the Prophet if the person who is the transgressor is a member of your faith or not, and whether they believe in Allah? And then likewise for other, the other uh, clergy, does it make a difference if it is a faith-based or a non-faith-based transgressor? Uh, of course not. Um, as far as, you know, we hear this word radical Islam, um, what we need to focus on is of course the source and uh, the Quran and the prof prophetic traditions and what they teach and uh, unfortunately in uh, every religion you will have people who understand it incorrectly and uh, unfortunately you will have issues and those issues uh, you know we have to basically build from um, if it's a person is transgressing and he's of your own faith, he will get the same punishment or he will get the same uh, in return. And if it's of a different faith, they will get the same return. I don't know if I answered the question. Because like, there's oftentimes language about the infidel and the infidel does not deserve any kind of mercy. The infidel does not constitute a human being. The, you know, that's the language that we see in the papers and the concern is, if that is not the tradition of the Quran, then what is leadership doing to bring that to the public? Well, um, living in this country, there is leadership that is doing what they can. And uh, as far as, you know, the infidel, infidel, um, basically, the Quran does have words which have violence in them. So does the Bible, and so does the Torah. And uh, basically we have to understand that these words, why they came. Now the Quran came over a period of 23 years. And in those 23 years, sometimes it was revealed while the Prophet was in the market. Sometimes it was being revealed while he was at home. Sometimes he was in the mosque. And sometimes it was being revealed while they were in battle. So the verses that are coming are according to the situation they're in. So if a person is in battle, the verses are going to be of that sort. But we cannot take it out of context. Now, the, the, the surah or the chapter that, uh, you know, it comes in many of the debates 
and uh, many places uh, it's called it's the ninth chapter and it's called Surah Tawbah and uh, the sixth uh, verse where it says you know kill them wherever you find them so we do teach this to our children and I was just teaching this um, a couple days ago actually and uh, then I asked them that what do you think about this verse why is it there you know why is it coming so then you have to explain the whole context that you know the Muslims were driven out of Mecca and they were they left their homes they left their businesses, they left their lands, and they were, you know, persecuted and massacred and tortured. Now, after a f few years, they came back to Mecca. They came back to their city. And uh, there was a peace treaty. And in that peace treaty, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, one of the few times in history that people have come back to their land and there's no violence at all zero they came back and they settled and you know uh, the prophetic tradition says that the prophet came and he was on his camel and his head was down like the most humble servant and he said the words that Joseph said to his brothers there will be no transgression against you there will be no difficulty on you on this day so they come back and now they're in their land but the peace treaty was broken over and over and over and over again and uh, there was there were assassinations on you know the assassinations were trying to be made on the Prophet and, and many other things so this this chapter starts out with Bara'atum minallah the first verse where it says now the obligation of your treaty that you had on you it's finished and now you know uh, the the verses of war are coming because now they're at war so we have to keep that into context we can't take this verse and put it uh, a person comes into a cinema and he starts acting on that verse because that's not the context it was at that time in that period for those people and uh, it came down and we learn a lot of rules as far as treaty is concerned and as far as the prophet coming and you know uh, there was no violence so we have to teach this but in the same time uh, you know the war was also there and uh, we also have to teach that but we can't take that out of context having said that now we have people that have a wrong understanding of that and you will always have people that are ignorant and you know like you said there has to be voice there has to be people there has to be you know scholars up there and they are they're trying they're trying their best uh, and um, I think uh, they're succeeding you know but the media magnifies those places where they're not so we only see uh, what the media is showing us, but if we were to travel the world a little bit, then we will see something else. Thank you for being a voice of peace. So we want to thank our panelists for being willing to share so openly.
And we hope that you'll join us for our other two discussions. Uh, the next, uh, speaking of folks who get it wrong, the role of females in... Uh, Sorry, the History of Religious Traditions, Tuesday, February 19th. That will be at Corpus Christi Catholic Church. And after that, Myths and Misperceptions, um, which will be Tuesday, March 19th at the uh, King Fahad Mosque. And uh, we hope that you will join us in all those places. He's going to show you something funny in just a minute. But before I lose you all to him, we are giving um, each of our speakers who came here tonight uh, their own water bottle uh, that they were uh, pouring out of tonight. And it says, Heal the World, Tikkun Olam Keilat Israel. <clears throat> because we really do believe, all of us in this room, that this is what begins to truly heal the world, is to start coming together and talking uh, bravely and courageously and openly with one another. Now you can have No, I, I just couldn't believe that somebody sent me this in the mail it, it's a fruit and nut bar called A Priest, a Rabbi, and a Penguin Walk into a Bar. That's all. Have a great evening.